from the beautiful and palatial UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dave Mitchell, and the Cleveland Browns have a new head coach. We're going to get into that, plus more coming up in just a little bit. Thanks for joining us tonight here at the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Glad to have you along as we sit back and talk for the next 60 minutes about the world of sports. We're going to get into the Olympics, the Super Bowl, Major League Baseball, Tanaka has signed, and Omar Vizquel has gotten his first post-career award. But first, the Cleveland Browns have hired their 15th head coach. It came down just about an hour and a half ago. Their new head coach is former Buffalo Bills defensive coordinator Mike Pettin. Pettin ends a twisting nearly four-week search for the Browns head coach. He finalized a five-year contract today with the Browns, who fired Rob Chudzinski on December 29th following just one season. The 47-year-old Penton is the son of, of a legendary Pennsylvania high school coach. He spent one year with the Bills after four as Rex Ryan's defensive coordinator with the New York Jets. With his clean-shaven head, he suddenly looks like Stone Cold Steve Austin. And imagine Stone Cold being the head coach of the Cleveland Browns, because this guy supposedly has a no-nonsense approach. Pettin is popular with his players, though, and he'll inherit a Cleveland team that went 4-12 and this past season and lost its last seven games. Now, Pettin emerged as the favorite to become Cleveland's seventh full-time coach since 1999 and fourth in six years as the Browns eliminated candidates and candidates took their name out of consideration. Candidates like Denver Offensive Coordinator Adam Gase, who is considered to be the front-runner. Josh McDaniels took his name out of consideration. Todd Bowles, Ken Wisenhunt, Ben McAdoo. Then, of course, the Browns just completely eliminated Dan Quinn, Mike Munchak, former Tennessee coach, Rich Bisakia, the special teams coach at Dallas, Dirk Cutter, the offensive coordinator at Atlanta, and Greg Schiano, former Tampa Bay head coach, were the others. And then there was Greg Roman. Roman is the offensive coordinator of the San Francisco 49ers. He has had success in tutoring quarterbacks like Andrew Luck, Alex Smith, and Colin Kaepernick. All of them were in the playoffs this year. But Greg Roman never got a sniff of this job. Owner Jimmy Haslam and Joe Banner never even interviewed him. From ESPN, Mark Brudel, Damian Woody, and Jerome Bettis discuss whether Mike Pettin will be successful as the new head coach of the Cleveland Browns, boldly going where no coach has gone before since 1999, starting with Brunel. But listen to what the second person speaking, Damian Woody, has to say about Pettin. My impressions of Mike, he's, first of all, he's a hard-working coach. He's been around some very good defensive players. He's been around some very good uh, defenses, and uh, he worked very closely with, with Rex Ryan. He's going to come into the Cleveland Browns with that Rex Ryan mentality. Tough, physical football, defense, run the ball. I think it's a good hire. I think the players will embrace him. I think he'll do very well. Trey, let me say this. First of all, I'm happy, I'm happy for Mike Pettin. There's no question about it. Um, but my personal opinion, just a guy, to be honest with you. So nothing in your relationships or your interactions with him stood out and made you think, yeah, that guy's going to be a great head coach. Not, not from, you know, not from what, I, what I saw. We know that being with the Jets, he, Rex ran that defense. There was no question. Mike actually ran it one year. They didn't have the, uh, the stats that Rex Ryan always covered with his, with his defense, so he assumed control of the, of the defense, defensive play calling again. So I, me, big picture, I just look at it as, as another guy in, in, this, uh, in this hire. Well, listen, to be fair, uh, you know, Mike Smith, nobody really heard of him. He's right. done well in Atlanta. Right. And Sean Payton was just a guy that Bill Parcells sort of groomed, and he's done fine. And, and you heard Edward also allude to Mike McCarthy. So it, it's not saying it's not going to be a good hire. It's just he clearly wasn't number one, maybe not even two, three, four, five for Cleveland. <laughs> and, Jerome, then there gets to the bigger issue. Their defense is actually pretty good in Cleveland. They've got players. They've got all kinds of issues on offense outside of Josh Gordon, and they don't know who their quarterback is. And, and that's why I thought they would go offensive 
uh, offensive-minded as the head coach because when you don't have some the structure on the offensive side, you want to bring in somebody who can then bring that structure in, bring the stability in. There were several problems that this Browns front office had during this coaching search. I think they made a mistake in firing Chudzinski, and I think they believed that they could bring in Josh McDaniels as the head coach right away or Bill O'Brien. And when those two were hired and McDaniels took his name out of the running almost instantaneously, they didn't know where to go. They didn't have a plan C. And then they wanted to talk with Adam Case from Denver, and then they wanted to talk to Dan Quinn. And when they found out that the Cleveland fans were really getting fed up with it, that's when they decided that they needed to make a move. Pettin really wanted this job badly, according to the people in Buffalo. In late December, a panel of former coaches and GMs had Pettin on a list of worthy candidates for future openings, but the Bills didn't want to lose him. Now, Pettin supposedly believes in an aggressive attacking defense, just like Ryan, and this season, the Bills allowed the league's lowest completion percentage at 55.3% after the Jets had held quarterbacks to a 52.6% in the previous four years. So the Browns hire Mike Penton. Now, what do they do about coordinators? Well, they have submitted a request to Buffalo to interview their linebackers coach, Jim O'Neill, to become Cleveland's defensive coordinator, according to some league sources. O'Neill and Penton also work together with the Jets. As far as offensive coordinator, it was believed that they wanted to bring in Alex Van Pelt, who was the quarterback's coach with the Green Bay Packers and now has been moved to running back's coach. But he has a contract through this upcoming season with the Packers, and it's not sure that Green Bay will give the Browns permission to interview him as a possible offensive coordinator. I think the perfect fit would be Brian Schottenheimer. Bring him in from St. Louis. The Cleveland fans love the Schottenheimer name. They worked together when they were in New York with the Jets. I think he'd be the perfect fit as offensive coordinator for the Browns. Mike Pettin is the 15th head coach of the Cleveland Browns. We're going to talk to a member of the Buffalo media next week about Mike Pettin and get their feelings on just what he did in Buffalo and what type of coach Pettin will be. Not only is the Browns front office taking a hammering because of the way that the coaching search has been conducted over the last month, but they've also had a problem with Devon Bess. Not only did he have a tough season, but the offseason has become a tough one also. Bess faces charges of assaulting a law enforcement officer, which means he faces jail time. Now the Miami Dolphins traded Bess to the Browns during the draft last year. And according to an article written today by Greg Doyle of CBS Sports, the Dolphins unloaded Bess on the Browns one month after he was committed to a treatment facility for psychological and mental health issues. Now, Bess has been self-destructing again. But that 10-month-old information from March 2013 is new and disturbing. So who should be held to blame, the Dolphins or the Browns? Well, there's no doubt both teams have had their share of controversy over the past year. What Miami did to Cleveland was unethical, dishonest, unprofessional, and unfair. And in the last week, Bess spiraled out of control in a scary way, triggering an investigation by the Browns last Thursday. Bess posted pictures on Twitter of marijuana and one day later being arrested on charges of assaulting a police officer at the Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood, Florida International Airport. Bess reportedly was walking through the airport concourse, singing and dancing with his pants falling down, then smashed a cup of coffee on an officer who asked him to stop. After that, Bess removed his shirt and crouched into a fighting stance. Now that was on Friday. On Saturday, Bess tweeted a photo of himself standing in front of a mirror completely naked. The Browns apparently started to figure it out in mid-December when they put him on the non-football illness list for the final two games of the season, which has been the worst of his career, as he only caught 42 passes this year when he led the NFL in drops with 14. Best is not well, hasn't been all year, and according to Doyle in his article, the Dolphins knew it. He needs help. The help the Dolphins offered was trading him 
to the Cleveland Browns. Now that's astounding negligence, but keep in mind General Manager Jeff Arland, or former General Manager, I should say, Jeff Arland, is the same guy who asked Des Bryant of the Cowboys before the 2010 draft if his mother was a prostitute. The same guy whose response to the news that 300-pound Richie Incognito was bullying 300-pound Jonathan Martin was to tell the starting offensive lineman to punch the other one. Ireland, presumably, is the one who traded Best to the Browns without making sure the Browns knew Devon Best was going to need help in his new city. But don't assume that Dolphins GM Ireland is the only one in the Dolphins organization who knew about Best's March hospitalization. Best caught 321 passes from 2008 through 2012 and was the Dolphins punt returner in that time. He wasn't just an asset, but he was a valuable part of this team. So when he was committed in March, don't think for a second that Coach Joe Philbin and owner Stephen Ross didn't know about it. Of course they knew. Ireland didn't just trade the team's leading receiver since 2008 without telling them why. Now Ireland is out of work, but Stephen Ross still owns the Dolphins, and Joe Philbin still coaches them. So, as you will hear next... Roger Goodell is preparing for the Super Bowl in a possible snowstorm. Expansion of the playoffs is on his mind and getting rid of the extra point. In the meantime, the executives around the league are becoming nonchalant and cheating under the supervision of Goodell. After all, let's talk about the concussion settlement being struck down by the federal court last week. Spygate and the New England Patriots. The New Orleans Saints bounty gate. The lockout, steering the Browns to sell to Jimmy Haslam, who is now under investigation for fraud. Everything Goodell does seems to have the same end game. It's geared to increasing the season to 18 games and making more money for the owners. Plain and simple, he's got no other agenda while being commissioner. While he works on that, he's destroying the game. The game that has made every owner a billionaire. There will never be another art model. Never. An owner who ends up broke. Goodell will make sure of that. I would like to know what Goodell's vision for the league 10 years from now is. What does he see? Maybe he needs to look into what is going on with his teams and what he plans to do with the Miami Dolphins rather than the lining of his and the owner's pockets. Well, as I said, Super Bowl 48 is scheduled for Sunday, February 2nd, with the Denver Broncos playing the Seattle Seahawks. But the NFL has put contingency plans in place to play the game anytime between Friday and Monday next weekend. So don't make any plans for next weekend. We could play the Super Bowl on Friday. Could be Saturday. Could be Sunday. Hey, with Roger Goodell, you flip a coin, and that's when you play. There is a storm of massive proportions that would have to be in the forecast for the league to put these contingencies into effect, though. But the way the weather has acted up over the past few weeks, that really may become a problem. Sandy Cassell of the Associated Press reports. The NFL and personnel at MetLife Stadium in northern New Jersey say they're ready for the Super Bowl. And the snowstorm proves it. The big game on February 2nd will be the first outdoor Super Bowl in a cold weather city. Stadium and league officials decided to have a snowstorm dress rehearsal after about a foot of snow fell in the New York metropolitan area on Tuesday. Their goal was to remove the snow from the stadium, parking lots, and access roads within an 18-hour time frame. NFL officials say state authorities will determine if the game has to be postponed but they say the league has contingency plans if that becomes necessary. The current forecast for Super Bowl Sunday in East Rutherford, New Jersey, is for a high of 40 and a 30% chance of rain or snow. Now, if a major storm or severe temperatures impacts the region, the game could be played anywhere from Friday to Monday, but the NFL says that's a worst-case scenario with a low probability based on current weather models. Now, as far as the game is concerned, if you listen to the odds makers, the high-octane Denver Broncos are your early favorite. Peyton Manning leads a balanced offensive attack for Denver, 
and boasts a stout defense that has stepped up immensely in the postseason, surrendering just 579 yards and 33 total points in two playoff wins. Seattle's defense has been just as superb in wins over San Francisco and New Orleans, but the Seahawks' offense has left a lot to be desired, racking up just 27 first downs in the two playoff games, the same number Denver accumulated in its win last Sunday over New England. Brian Billick looks up the matchup in Super Bowl 48. We're going to hear a great deal as we ramp up to Super Bowl 48 with the Denver Broncos and the Seattle Seahawks. I'm already tired of talking about it, and we're just starting. But it is going to be very, very compelling on so many different levels. You're starting with the number one seed in each of the, uh, each of the uh, conferences. That doesn't happen all that often. We're talking about the number one defense in the league via the Seattle Seahawks versus the number one offense in the league and the Denver Broncos. We're talking about the top passing attack in the league by way of the Broncos and the best pass defense in the league by way of the Seattle Seahawks. We have the compelling story of the slam dunk Hall of Famer and Peyton Manning with the new young kid on the block with Russell Wilson and their contrasting styles of play. We have the great receiving court in Denver across the board. They had five guys with 60 receptions or more. That has never happened before. And more importantly, they have got some size to them against this outstanding secondary, maybe the best in the National Football League, of the Seattle Seahawks when you're talking about Richard Sherman, you're talking about Earl Thomas, you're talking about uh, Chancellor on the outside. The big difference I see for Denver, or the difficulty I should say for Seattle is, yeah, they're used to playing good players. I don't think they've seen a receiving core as big as this one, notwithstanding Wes Welker. You're talking about Julius and Demarius Thomas. You're talking about Eric Decker. These are all legitimate size guys with speed. They have a physical game. As good as the secondary is in Seattle, I don't think they've seen a receiving core this size cumulatively before, so that's going to make it a heck of a challenge. They're two different styles of play, and you can tell with the way the lines are coming down out of Las Vegas that uh, no one's quite sure how to pin this one because it seems to be flopping all over the place as to who's going to be favored. So um, truly a unique Super Bowl. We'll see how good it actually is, but really a unique Super Bowl in terms of the contrasting styles of teams we're going to see. Right now, the Denver Broncos are favored by three. You're giving away three points if you bet on the Broncos. I just hope it snows. I hope the weather is so terrible, and I would love to see a Bud Selig moment with Roger Goodell. When the weather was so bad in the World Series years ago, Bud Selig sat in the stands with no coat on just to show that it wasn't too cold. I hope Roger Goodell has to do the same thing, just so he will understand that this game should never be held in a cold-weather city and outside ever again. Now, Goodell also said over the week that the league is seriously considering expanding the playoffs to allow two more teams into the wild-card round. In an interview with the NFL Network on Monday, Goodell said that he didn't envision the expansion happening until 2015. He said the new proposed format, which would mean that only one team per conference would earn a bye week during the wild card round, could lead to games on Friday and Monday, which would be rather interesting since high school sports usually play on Friday. But Goodell, to him it doesn't seem to matter. The big discussion would be the first weekend, the wild card weekend of playoffs, we're looking at every alternative, and I think that's what the membership ultimately is going to have to decide. Could you play a game on Friday night, two on Saturday, two on Sunday, and another one on Monday? You want to balance all that with uh, with the competitive issues that come with that. Is, is that a smart thing for us to do? Those are the things that we're going to be studying. If you did play on a Monday night, the likelihood is we wouldn't allow you to play until Sunday. But these are the kind of things that have to be balanced uh, between Obviously, the competitive is the most important issue and the safety issues, but then also from a, from a partner standpoint, our broadcast partners. Of course, the broadcast partners, they'll be giving more money to the NFL in order to have an extra round of playoffs. Forget the competitiveness. Forget the safety. Goodell doesn't care about that. The only thing he cares about is putting more money in the pockets of the owners. Goodell also said in the interview Monday that the NFL is considering eliminating extra point kicks and revising the scoring system. He calls it the least exciting play in any NFL game by far. 
Blocks almost never happen on an extra point, and kickers rarely miss. There were only five mixed extra points this year out of 1,200-some-odd attempts. Goodell understands that, and, according to him, in an effort to keep things lively, the league is looking into changes. One proposal Goodell says he's heard of is to automatically award seven points for a TD and then allow teams to go for an eighth point with a passing or running play, just like going for two. Now, if the team fails to convert when going for eight, they would lose a point, meaning they'd only get six for the touchdown. Now, whether that system is put into place remains to be seen, but Goodell says the league competitions committee is continually assessing possible changes, along with Goodell's right foot in their backside. Well, in college football, there are probably as many as 5,000 people down at Ladd Peebles Stadium for this week's Senior Bowl to evaluate some of the best prospects in the country. It's an event that's as big or bigger than any convention they have in Mobile, Alabama, as well as being one of the premier events for scouts and NFL teams leading up to the draft. Jacksonville's Gus Bradley and Atlanta's Mike Smith have a big advantage over the other NFL coaches scouting the Senior Bowl. Everyone will be watching the game and the practices, but as far as the coaches are concerned for the North and South squads, Bradley and Smith are getting a much closer, much more personal look at the prospects. They get to speak to the players within team meetings. They get to see how they act at dinner. They get a much stronger insight into how the players are aside from their athletic skills and talents. The throwing conditions have been less than ideal this week in Mobile. The wind gusts have been an issue for all six quarterbacks. But Fresno State's Derek Carr has managed to slightly separate himself from the pact. Carr is a six foot three, two hundred eighteen pound quarterback and led the nation in total passing yards with just under fifty one hundred, touchdowns with fifty two, and average completions per game at thirty five last season. He's got a compact delivery, throws on time, and is able to cut through the wind with a very tight spiral. Now, I've been impressed with his ability during the year to throw on the move. Also, he has scored some points with evaluators by spending extra time working with his receivers following the end of practice. I think the Browns could do worse than draft Derek Carr. And he speaks with Alex Marvez of Fox Sports about the NFL draft coming up in May the past season at Fresno State, and the leadership style that he can bring to a ball club. Football was so fun. You know, we won a championship. That's always our number one goal. Uh, all my, you know, uh, my three, you know, main receivers all went over 1,000 yards, and that's that was our goal going into it. You know, I, I want to see them succeed way more than I want to see myself succeed. It was great seeing your brother on the sideline. We know what, you know, he had a long NFL career. What has it meant for you to have that relationship with him where now he took some time away from the NFL and was around you? Oh, man, uh, it's weird how things work out and what timing does. And, you know, everything happens for a reason. And so he's been around me, been able to teach me about this week, been able to teach me about the combine, you know, pro day, the draft process in general. And, uh, you know, he has so much insight. You know, it's unbelievable. So yeah, what a wonderful resource. Now, what are your, your goals before the draft? How do you want to continue to grow as a quarterback? What are some of the things that you can do to impress these NFL scouts? Uh, just continue to be myself. I'm not going to be, you know, when you talk to me, I'm talking to you right here. I'm the same person when I'm at home. You know, I'm going to continue to be the same and, uh, you know, make sure that hopefully one of these 32 teams will fall in love. <laughs> well, you know the pressure of the quarterback position in the NFL, but it seems like you're ready to handle that from a maturity standpoint and an attitude standpoint. Oh, absolutely. You know, anyone can say anything they want about me. You know, I've heard it all, you know, since I was, you know, very young. So it, it, it just bounces right off of me because uh, I know how it works. I know how this, you know, this world works. I know how the uh, NFL works. So, you know, I'm going to continue to try and be my best, you know, hopefully win some Super Bowls. That's always the plan for everyone in this room. And, uh, you know, we'll do our very best to get there. Besides your brother, who did you idolize as a quarterback growing up and why? Oh, Brett Favre. That's why I wear number four. Uh, I've never gotten to meet him, so hopefully one day I'll get to meet him. But, uh, you know, I, I think that the way he played the game, you know, he was a risk taker a little bit, you know, and uh, you know, what a great competitor. Yeah, I, you know, like I love Kobe Bryant, I, my, one of my best friends, Paul George. What great competitors, but they're my favorite people to watch and, to, you know, model my game after because they compete so hard. Well, we will have a more in-depth look at the Super Bowl next week between Denver and Seattle. But coming up in just a couple of weeks, 
the Olympics. Believe it or not, the Winter Olympics are back in town. Not in the United States, but over in Russia. And, of course, that brings automatic fears of Olympic terror. And that has continued to grow in the countdown to the Games, which formerly opened on February 7th. Now, in the past week, a militant video has promised a surprise in Sochi. And Russia has hunted for at least five suspected terrorists who may have designs on an attack. Russia has balked at sharing specific information on terror threats made against the Sochi Olympics with Washington, a U.S. official said, amid mounting fears over security at the Games. The Obama administration, meanwhile, publicly stopped short of expressing full confidence in a massive Russian security operation ahead of the sporting spectacular opening next month. Signs of increasing U.S. concerns followed a telephone discussion on security at the Sochi Olympics between Presidents Barack Obama and Vladimir Putin on Tuesday. A senior U.S. official told AFP on condition of anonymity that Russia has not been forthcoming in sharing specific threat information. NBC News' Richard Engel reports from inside the difficult-to-reach coastal cluster in Sochi. Security in Sochi is out in full force. Looking for trouble before it happens. And hidden in the mountains, the Russian army has deployed artillery and rockets to shoot down a 9-11 style attack. In public, Russian officials have expressed nothing but confidence. But they may be more concerned than they let on. Otherwise, why the discussions at high-level U.S.-Russia meetings about lending Moscow high-tech American equipment to thwart remotely detonated bombs? But it's too late for that. U.S. military officials tell NBC News they don't have enough time to install the anti-bomb technology before the games. So what exactly are the Russians trying to protect? The Olympic venues are spread out over two main sections. There's the coastal cluster on the Black Sea. Built around a tight circle are the stadiums for the opening ceremony, ice skating and hockey. Nearby is the Athletes' Village. The area is connected to a train station and airport. Thirty miles away up a winding road is the mountain cluster, where the skiing and sledding events are spread out over slopes and valleys. We're now inside the coastal cluster, the park of Olympic stadiums, and it is not easy to get in here. It took us two hours of having our bags checked and x-rayed. You can't go anywhere without a badge. We've seen police wearing portable chemical weapons detectors. This area certainly feels tightly controlled. Still, all the talk about security threats has some American athletes and their families concerned. Freestyle skier Carrie Herman's mother, Diana, is still coming, but she's almost canceled twice. I don't get a lot of confidence from the U.S. government. They seem like they question whether the Russians have a handle on it or not. Family members of other athletes have said they are canceling, in part because of security. Well, extremist insurgents based in North Caucasus republics such as Dagestan who are seeking their own independent state, have vowed to disrupt the Sochi Games in an effort to undermine Putin. Counterterrorism analyst Michael Leiter of NBC says transportation in Russia is vulnerable in the high-threat areas surrounding Sochi. The terrorists, who previously launched an attack, he said, have every incentive to do so again. But he thinks the area inside Sochi is safe. I am optimistic that the venues themselves, the closer you get to those venues, those official sites within Sochi, will be safe because the Russians have done so much and they're very hard targets. I am pessimistic about beyond those sites. Places like Volgograd, mass transit leading to Sochi, that is a real vulnerability for the Russians. Well, as you heard Richard Engel say earlier, many Olympic athletes have asked their family members to stay home, saying they want to concentrate on winning the gold medal rather than being concerned about their loved one's safety. Leiter says it's a valid concern the further outside of Sochi you get. If they were traveling from Moscow and then taking the train through Russia, if they were in places like that, they are really vulnerable. This is a high-threat environment, as we saw in Volgograd in December, and I think moving towards the Olympics, the terrorists who probably launched that attack have every incentive to try to do so again. Still, the competition is going to move forward. Usually the team sport that garners the most viewers during the Winter Olympics is the hockey tournament. 
The USA and Canada are sending NHL players over there so that the league will shut down for two weeks. USA hockey writer Chris Peters breaks down the front line and what he expects from Team USA in Sochi. When you look up front, you got Zach Parisi on the first line with uh, Joe Pavelski and Patrick Kane, three of the best uh, uh, offensive players in the NHL among American-born. And then you got Ryan Kessler on line two, centering James Van Riemsdyk, Bill Kessel, pair of teammates with Maple Leafs. Another couple of teammates on line three, David Backus centering TJ Oshie from the Blues, uh, along with Montreal Canadiens forward Max Pacioretty. And on the fourth line, kind of a crash and bang line with uh, Dustin Brown, Paul Stasny, and Ryan Callahan, and then for extra forwards, we got Derek Stepan and Blake Wheeler. The rink is bigger in the Olympics, which means stamina is at a premium. That's how the USA hockey team in 1980 managed to win the gold over a more talented Russian squad. As far as defense, the USA could be a question mark, according to Peters. Yeah, well, I think this one's a little bit more in flux. It's going to be tougher to predict, but uh, the way I have it set right now, I've got Ryan Suter, the best American defenseman in the game right now, with Kevin Shattenkirk, good puck mover. On the second pairing, Ryan McDonough, who is a great up-and-coming defenseman with the New York Rangers, is turning into a great two-way guy. With another good two-way guy, uh, the youngest player on Team USA, Justin Falk. The third pairing, you got a couple of teammates. You've got Brooks Orpik and Paul Martin. I think that would be Team USA's primary shutdown pair. They'd be looked to for uh, a lot of defense. And then the, the extra guys, you'll, uh, you'll be dressing seven defensemen, but you, you take eight. I've got Cam Fowler and John Carlson. Um, and certainly if those are your last two guys, I think you're feeling pretty good about the depth that you have on defense. The young group, uh, very fast and mobile, and I'm very interested to see how they're able to uh, pull things together in Sochi. Goalie is always the most important position for any hockey team in the Olympics, and this time it's no exception. A hot goalie can carry a team far, but how does the USA stand in that area? Well, they've got three goalies to choose from, and Chris Peters talks about who will be the starter in the net? Well, I think if the Olympics started tomorrow, it would be Ryan Miller, the way he's played in Buffalo. He's playing in a bad situation, but he's remained competitive. He, he was the starter in 2010. He was named goaltender of the tournament. You like that experience. Uh, the big thing that a lot of people don't realize is that when you're on the bigger ice surface, one of the hardest positions to adjust is goaltending. The angles are different. You have to be aware uh, of, of a much wider ice surface, so you, your focus uh, certainly can uh, stray a little bit. But I think Ryan Miller, with his wealth of experience, would be the guy. But certainly you can't discount Jonathan Quick's Stanley Cup experience. Um, you know, he's had two straight playoffs where he's just been lights out good. Um, he hasn't been as great in the regular season, though, so he, and he also has been injured. So I think that complicates things, and that's why I think Ryan Miller is a safer pick for the starting goalie. Again, keep in mind the Olympics will begin on February 7th, they'll be televised on the NBC family of networks, which means the NBC Sports Channel, NBC Network Channel, and the USA Today Channel, along with some others. Well, it's time for our Good, the Bad, and the Ugly segment on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Let's start out with the good tonight, and this one is a really good story. Three years after being paralyzed while making a tackle on a kick return, former Rutgers football player Eric Legrand has earned his college degree. The former Scarlet Knights defensive tackle announced the accomplishment Wednesday morning on Twitter. Thank you for the congratulations on finishing my degree at Rutgers. Definitely has been a journey since I got hurt, but I did it. Hashtag no excuses. While Legrand was initially injured on October 16, 2010, during a game against Army at MetLife Stadium, Legrand went on to sign a symbolic contract with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who were at the time coached by his former coach at Rutgers, Greg Schiano. And earlier this year, Rutgers retired Legrand's number 52 during a ceremony at High Point Solutions Stadium. Legrand was 60 credits shy of graduating when he was hurt in 2010 and has been working toward completing his degree since January of 2011. Now that he's got his degree in hand, Legrand says he has also written a book about his journey and started a foundation in the honor of people with spinal cord injuries and hopes to pursue a career in broadcasting. That is our good story of the night. The bad, 
Well, this one's an interesting story. It has to do with the Super Bowl. Nathaniel Wentz and his dad have bonded over the victories and heartaches on the gridiron since Nathaniel was just three years old. Well, on Sunday, those passions were tested when Nathaniel was told to go home and change his shirt after coming to work in, hard to believe it, a Denver Broncos jersey. He says the manager at the Odyssey One Family Entertainment Center in Tacoma invited employees to wear jerseys on the game day to show off their team spirit. Apparently, however, he only meant that it should be Seattle Seahawks jerseys. Here's a report from Channel 9 in Denver. It's not easy being anything but green in Seattle these days. Not a hospitable home for Broncos fans. A 17-year-old Denver fan says he lost his job over his love for the Broncos. His bosses would more likely say it was insubordination. Nathaniel Wentz works, make that worked, at an entertainment complex. He says his boss told them to wear team jerseys to show team spirit last weekend. Nathaniel showed up in a Broncos jersey, and he was promptly sent home, fired the next day. Nathaniel says, looking on the bright side, at least now he can stay home and watch the Super Bowl. The 17-year-old high school quarterback says, technically was fired for not returning to work after changing his shirt. Wentz's father said he asked to talk to the owner, who didn't call back, so Nathaniel stayed home. The next day he found out he had been fired. Management at Odyssey One refused to talk about the situation on the record. Chances are... Odyssey One will give Wentz his job back once they realize the country is in his corner. Now, it's a bad story this week, but if Odyssey One comes to their senses, it could be the good story next week. And the ugly? Boy, this is just continuing to get uglier and uglier. It's no surprise that the Major League Baseball players are not happy with Alex Rodriguez for suing the Major League Baseball Players Association. Those players will be ready to show Rodriguez just how angry they are when he returns in 2015. According to Yahoo Sports, players wanted to kick Rodriguez out of the union, with not one person opposing the move. However, union leaders said that was impossible. Players are now ready to take things into their own hands. Well, according to one player, they told Yahoo Sports, when he gets up to bat, you can hit him and hit him hard. That's what I'd do. He sued us. Johnny Peralta and Nelson Cruz screwed up, and you know what? They owned up to it, and they took their medicine. Rodriguez needs to be scared of coming back and facing the people he sued. If he can't fear the wrath of getting kicked out or not being included, then he's going to be forced out. After that story came out, outspoken Diamondbacks pitcher Brandon McCarthy wasn't shy about sharing his thoughts on Rodriguez. After next season... McCarthy asked on Twitter, what would you rather have in a baseball clubhouse, Alex Rodriguez or MRSA? That's our Good, the Bad, and the Ugly segment for tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Thanks for joining us this evening. I am Dave Mitchell, and with the cold weather outside, I want to move into baseball, just simply because I can. And the reason is, not only is it my show, but I'm sick and tired of the cold weather, and all I want to do is think about pitchers and catchers reporting to Florida and Arizona in about the next two to three weeks. And to lead off our Major League Baseball segment for tonight, I guess you got to look at the signings that have happened in the game over the past couple of days, led off by the New York Yankees and Japanese starting pitcher Masahiro Tanaka. Love that name. They have agreed on a seven-year, $155 million deal. The deal also includes an opt-out clause after year four. Tanaka, 25 years old, had a 24-0 record with a 1.27 ERA, an .94 whip, and 183 strikeouts in 212 innings last season for the Rakuten Golden Eagles. In his seven-year career in the Nippon Professional Baseball League, Tanaka was 99-35 and with a 2.30 ERA and a 1.11 whip. $155 million for a guy who normally starts on six days rest. America, what a country. But the Yankees were desperate for another pitcher. And you know what happens when the Yankees are desperate? They spend money. General Manager Brian Cashman explains how the Yankees scouted Tanaka 
and the economics behind signing him. The evaluations on him started back in 07. Certainly paid close attention to him in the 09 WBC, where we were first able to evaluate him with a Major League Baseball and against Major League hitters. <clears throat> this year we were at 15 of his games, including the WBC, and we sent a Major League scout from the U.S. to evaluate him in the playoffs as well. Am I comfortable offering $155 million? It's the cost of doing business. You know, when you want to acquire some of the best talent in the world, you know, whether it's coming from the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, the United States, uh, uh, or Japan, you know, obviously the highest talent costs a lot of money. You know, obviously you can point to players here in the playing Major League Baseball, football, whether it's soccer transfers, you know, what have you. Um, there's a lot of success, and then there's a lot of, a lot of ones that don't work out. Uh, but the one thing that's consistent is on a yearly basis, um, the efforts of clubs, clubs that try to continue to improve themselves, create that bidding environment that, that produces you know, large contracts for, for rare talent. Tanaka can now slot behind CeCe Sabathia in the Yankees rotation and ahead of Hiroki Kuroda and Ivan Nova. The fifth starter will come from either Michael Pineda, Vidal Nuno, and David Phelps. Now, Tanaka thrives with three-plus pitches, according to scouting reports. He has a fastball that works up into the middle 90s, a devastating splitter that sits around the 85 to 90 mile per hour range, and a slider that goes into the low 80s. John Heyman talks about Tanaka, what he brings to the Yankees, and are the Yankees better after their spending spree this offseason? Well, I think you probably would have had to see him pitch to really give a, an informed opinion of that. I, I do like the fact that the Yankees... Uh, can now be considered contenders by getting a very good pitcher. For me to say whether he's worth $155 million plus $20 million plus all the luxury tax money now that they're going to have to spend as they're going to go well over $189 million now and have to uh, be taxed, um, you know, I'd rather have seen the, at least the uh, in-depth scouting reports or seen him pitch. Looking at it on paper, he's 24-0 with a 1-2-70 ERA last year, 99-35 over his career in Japan. So uh, this guy's obviously a very, very good pitcher, obviously helps them a great deal. Whether it's worth exactly that amount, which, you know, we still have to figure out the luxury tax to know, but probably close to $200 million, uh, I think it would be hard to say at this point. But... If you're a Yankee fan and you want your team to be a contender, this was a major, major step forward. Because their pitching was thin uh, going into this year. Now it's not. Now they have an excellent, excellent number two starter. They've got to be considered one of the favorites. I don't think there's any question about that. Even at a low end, even if you say Tanaka's only going to be a number two to three starter, uh, this is still a very, very, very good team here. And uh, that uh, lineup is exceptional. Uh, better than last year, even with Cano, I think. So they're going to score an awful lot of runs. And uh, their pitching is now solid enough where you could say uh, they are a favorite, if not the favorite, in the American League. Well, as far as the new posting system, the Yankees still owe the Golden Eagles a $20 million posting fee. Not only that, but the Yankees now have surpassed the $189 million luxury tax threshold. Now, as part of this contract also, get this, you're going to love this, the Yankees also agreed to pay for four first-class airline tickets for Tanaka and his family to come to the U.S. They have also agreed to a $100,000 annual housing allowance, and the Yankees will pay $30,000 for Tanaka to move. All over and above the $155 million salary that Tanaka will receive. Well, after that signing, the Milwaukee Brewers agreed to a four-year contract with right-hander Matt Garza, bolstering a starting rotation that was among the best in baseball during the second half of the 2013 season. The deal is for $52 million over four years, according to Ken Rosenthal of the Major League Baseball Network and Fox Sports. Garza is 30 and began the last three seasons with the Cubs before July trade sent him to Texas. He owns a 3.84 ERA over parts of eight years in the major leagues. Now, this deal has not been confirmed by Milwaukee as of yet, but if it is confirmed, he joins a Brewers rotation expected to include Kyle Loesch, Giovanni Gallardo, Willie Peralta, Marco Estrada, and Tyler Thornburg. Meanwhile, two other pitchers, 
should now pick new teams very soon with Tanaka and Garza down. Ubaldo Jimenez and Irvin Santana will almost certainly sign with a team within the week. But what teams are interested in those two pitchers? Well, John Heyman talks about Jimenez and Santana. Uh, Santana, very good and consistent pitcher, uh, should get, I would think, at least a four-year deal. Jimenez, uh, a very, very talented pitcher, not as consistent maybe as the other guys. That may be a little bit of a question mark for him. Also has a draft pick attached, as does Santana. I wouldn't be shocked if Cleveland welcomed him back if the price were to fall. Uh, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily going to fall. We'll, we'll look and see what happens now. I think people are waiting around at Tanaka. This is a big chip to fall. And while there will be different teams involved here, I think Toronto will be involved with these teams. Um, you know, I do think Arizona will be involved. Uh, Seattle, a potential player. The Angels, potentially involved. We'll see about the Orioles. Texas now has lost Holland. So a lot of different teams involved. And uh, these three pitchers and Arroyo is another good pitcher. Uh, will get good deals. I'm not sure they're going to get exactly what they would have hoped for, but uh, they all will get good deals eventually. And then there are the hitters. Kendry Morales, Nelson Cruz are two that are still available. Cruz wanted to return to the Rangers, but Texas is out now after they signed Shinsu Chu to that mammoth contract. Now Detroit seems to be in play. But is Cruz a good fit in Detroit? John Paul Morosi of Fox Sports looks into the possible interest of the Tigers. Cruz is one of the, the major free agent position players. A lot of pitchers still out there as well. One team that's been speculated about has been the Detroit Tigers. Now, I checked on this today, heard from two sources that said, no, nothing hot going on there now between Cruz and the Tigers. Maybe the Mariners are a better fit. But the Tigers' situation is kind of interesting because, of course, the protection from Miguel Cabrera in the last couple of years has been Prince Fitter, a very reliable player. He's played every game the last two years and even going back further than that. And one thing about Victor Martinez, who's probably going to be Cabrera's protection this year, is he may not play 162 because of his past health history. So you may want to get a little bit more protection there. That's why Cruz would make sense. But it sounds like right now, nothing hot there for the Tigers. They probably are going to be reluctant to give up that draft pick that it would take to sign Cruz. On Tuesday, the Cleveland Indians announced that former shortstop Omar Vizquel will be inducted into their Hall of Fame this summer, making the former shortstop the 40th member of the franchise's elite class of players. Cleveland will also posthumously induct longtime broadcaster Jimmy Dudley into the Distinguished Hall. Both Vizquel and Dudley will be recognized prior to the Tribes game against the Tigers on June 21st at Progressive Field. Vizquel spent parts of 11 seasons in an Indians uniform from 1994 through 2004, helping guide the team to six division titles and a pair of American League pennants. And along the way, Omar picked up eight of his 11 gold gloves and made three all-star teams during his time in Cleveland. Matt Vaskersian of the Major League Baseball Network examines the career of Omar Vizquel. It was an unbelievable feeling going and walking to the play, and I went down on my knees and said, please don't cry here, you still have to hit. As a youth in Caracas, Venezuela, Omar Vizquel grew up idolizing fellow countryman and Hall of Fame shortstop Louis Aparicio. Above his bed was a poster of Dave Concepcion, another Venezuelan. So it was only fitting that when Vizquel himself broke into the majors in 1989, he wore number 13 to honor Concepcion. Vizquel quickly established himself as one of the premier defensive shortstops in the majors. His flair for the dramatic lending to the unique ability of making plays with the bare hand. Ground ball over the middle, charged by Vizquel, bare hand to the no-hitter! After winning his first gold glove following the 1993 season, Vizquel was traded to the Indians. He'd win the gold glove in each of his first eight seasons in Cleveland, while being a major contributor to a team that won six division titles and two AL pennants in a seven-year stretch. Bouncing ball toward the hole. Vizquel stops it. Throws from the outfield grass. What a play! Roberto Alomar's arrival in 1999 gave the Tribe arguably one of the best double play combos ever seen. Alomar's arrival coincided with Vizquel's offensive renaissance. From 1999 to 2001, Vizquel batted 291 with a 366 on base percentage while averaging 26 stolen bases and 97 runs scored per season. With the Indians rebuilding, Vizquel signed with the Giants as a free agent following the 04 campaign. Little O would play eight more seasons with four different organizations, winning two more gold gloves. 
So how did the Indians choose the date for Vizquel and Dudley's induction? Well, Omar's now a first base coach for the Detroit Tigers. So the Tigers will be in town that day, and that's how they did it. Plus the fact that Dudley passed away in 1999, so it really didn't matter for him. Dudley was with the Cleveland Indians mostly on radio from 1948 through 1967. He was fired from the Indians after the 67 season because it was said he and partner Bob Neal didn't get along. Then Seattle was awarded an American League franchise for the 1969 season, and Dudley took over the radio announcing duties. Here's a clip of how Dudley sounded in one of his last seasons in Major League Baseball. Rudy is on first, and the batter is Tom Reynolds, right-hand batter. He takes a strike over the outside corner. There's Locker's best pitch, down and away, around the knees. And the pitch swung, and there's the ground ball, backhanded beautifully by Gill over to Kubiak, one away, back to first, it's a double play. There is one that is a dandy, something beautiful to see. A beautiful backhand stopped by Gus Gill, a flip throw over to the shortstop, Kubiak, who made one whale of a trip across the bag. For the force on Rudy, he went to second to double the speedy Reynolds. 4-6-3, the side is retired. A beautiful double play to end the ball game. One run on three base hits, and one man is left. And the final score, 19 for the Seattle Pilots, and one for Oakland. Well, just imagine how Dudley would have announced a double play with Vizquel and Robbie Alomar. Hey, the Boston Red Sox have signed three-time All-Star outfielder Grady Sizemore to a one-year deal worth a base salary of just $750,000. That was kind of a surprise because it's been rumored that Sizemore was going to be going to the Cincinnati Reds. But Sizemore, in a last-second change of mind, decided on the Red Sox. Now, with incentives, he could earn $6 million. Sizemore thinks he's ready to start spending his time on the field instead of on the training table because... He's been plagued by a barrage of injuries over the last two years and has had numerous surgeries, including microfracture surgery on both knees. So, is he ready to go? Sizemore says yes. No restrictions from a running standpoint. I mean, I'm kind of doing everything I need to 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 get ready for a normal baseball season. Um, You know, my whole program is kind of built to to be ready, you know, day one of spring training, and that's kind of where I'm at right now and kind of the same, you know, program outline I've been following you know, this whole off season. I won't really know how I feel until I get out there and it's, you know, you're grinding every day. You know, it's you can do so much, only so much from a, a rehab standpoint or an off-season program. You know, baseball season starts, you're on your feet every day. It's long hours, I think. You know, when I get in that that kind of uh, format, I guess, uh, you know, seeing how I react when I'm, you know, pounding it every day, week in and week out, that's kind of like the final test. It's been frustrating. Uh, I mean, no one likes dealing with injuries, and, you know, I've had my fair share. So, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, that's behind me now. I'm looking forward to just kind of moving on and, and, you know, starting, you know, second half of my career. Well, if Sizemore can stay healthy, he has at least a chance to win a starting job because prospect Jackie Bradley Jr. will be his top competition in center field with the Red Sox. Hey, let's switch to the NBA and the Cleveland Cavaliers, where the Cavs have lost Two in a row after winning three out of five on the West Coast. It's really been a disappointing couple of games for the Cavaliers. They lost on Monday, Martin Luther King Day, to the Dallas Mavericks, a game they came back from 24 points down to actually pull within two. And then they lost last night to the Chicago Bulls, a team that they are chasing to make the playoffs. That upset Coach Mike Brown, and it's the inconsistency that is starting to get to Brown. I don't know if it's a cycle that we're, we seem to be stuck in. Uh, I thought against Dallas, uh, I thought our, our second unit came out and did not play well. Uh, and Dallas went on a run. I thought our first unit came out, responded in the third <laughs> quarter, got us back in the game. And, you know, our second unit went back in and that, that, that uh, Dallas came. They went on another run, stretched it to 17, and then we ended up cutting it and giving ourselves a chance to win, uh, win the game. Uh, prior to that, uh, we played some pretty good basketball. Uh, I, I think tonight uh, we did not. So I don't know if it's a cycle that we're in. Going into the game, we talked about we, we talked about the, the, the tougher team or the more physical team is going to win the game. And we did not show up in that department tonight against those guys. And that's why 
And the score is what it is. That's why they shot what they shot, and that's why we shot what we shot. You know, I go back to uh, they just they made us keep the ball on one side of the floor. Uh, we were very, very, very slow with our pace, very methodical in the half court, and we didn't do a good job of trying to get teammates open and or moving the ball. Well, it seems to be the same old story for the Cavaliers every game. They get out-toughed, and they get outplayed. And they just don't seem to be able to put it all together. And I think that's starting to fall upon Coach Mike Brown. In college basketball, the Ohio State Buckeyes are having their troubles too. They've never lost more than four in a row under Thad Mata. Yet, Ohio State lost three times in just more than a week. And it dropped from number three in the national rankings to number 17. With the loss to Nebraska on Monday, the Buckeyes will likely drop completely out of next week's top 25 for the first time since 2009. Andy Katz of ESPN talks about the Buckeye woes. Ohio State, they've lost four straight games. And according to their staff, one of the things they've got to fix is defense, believe it or not, which is always a staple for Ohio State. The other thing, learn how to finish games in these four straight losses to Michigan State, to Iowa, and to Nebraska and Minnesota. It's all been down to the last possession or two, Ohio State not being able to make the play. What's the problems? Well, Lenzel Smith is having a hard time shooting the basketball during Big Ten play. He's made only four of 25 shots from beyond the arc in six conference games. Smith was 45% on three-pointers in non-conference action. Amir Williams saw his minutes decreased against Nebraska, playing only 16 minutes. But Mata said Wednesday they need more from the junior big man. And the big problem is the inconsistent point guard play. And when was the last time you could say that about an Ohio State team? Senior point guard Aaron Kraft has 19 turnovers and four losses. He had only 17 turnovers in the 12 wins before the losing streak started. Tonight, the Buckeyes host Illinois. Illinois leads the all-time series with Ohio State, 101 wins against 66 losses. But the Buckeyes hold a slight 42-40 edge in Columbus. Since Mata took over the program in 2004, Ohio State is 12-5 and against the Illini. That game is already underway in Columbus. The top five teams, according to the Associated Press College Basketball Poll this week, Arizona number one, Syracuse two, Michigan State three, Villanova four, and Wichita State has moved in to the top five. They are number five. One of the best sports times outside of competing on the field is the NCAA tournament. People from all over print out their brackets and predict the outcomes of every game. Of course, this is fun in the alleged pots that people can win. While it's not impossible to fill out a perfect NCAA tournament bracket, it's as close to impossible as you can get. There are nine quintillion ways to fill out a bracket. And though basketball experts have a slightly better odds, around 1 in 128 billion, the parity in college basketball this year will make the 2014 bracket probably the hardest in recent memory to fill out come March. And that's probably why Quicken Loans and Warren Buffett are offering a $1 billion prize to anyone who fills out a 100% perfect NCAA bracket. If someone beats the odds... They will receive $25 million per year for 40 years or a lump sum payment of $500 million. Quicken Loans is also offering $100,000 in prizes to each of the top 20 brackets submitted, so at least some money will be changing hands. In our final story tonight, play in the heat-drenched Australian Tennis Open is winding down. Tomorrow night on Rod Laver Arena, a new chapter will be written in the storied Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer rivalry. The world's number one player, Nadal, holds a commanding 22-10 head-to-head lead over fellow Australian Open semifinalist Roger Federer in what is widely regarded as the greatest tennis rivalry of all time. Not since Pete Sambras and Andre Agassi have fans all over the world clamored to see the likes of Nadal taking on Federer. The Spaniard with the heart of a lion has challenged Federer like no other since their first meeting almost a decade ago. Nadal reigned supreme on that occasion, knocking over the Swiss phenom in straight sets 6-3, 6-3. That match will be coming up 
tomorrow. The first semifinal is coming up later on tonight with Tomas Burdich taking on number eight seed Stanislaw Warinka. And on the women's side, first up will be the match between the number four seed Nali and the number 30 seed Eugenie Bouchard. Then Agnieszka Radwanska will take on number 20 Dominika Sabolkova. The women's final will be played on Saturday, and the men's final will be played on Sunday. And that's going to do it for us tonight. do want to give a shout-out to my niece, Morgan Mitchell, who this past weekend was crowned the new Miss Teen Williams County in Northwest Ohio. Congratulations, Morgan. She follows in the footsteps of her sister, who also was the junior teen miss around the state of Ohio. That's going to do it for us. Of course, the Browns, a new head coach tonight, Mike Pettin from the Buffalo Bills. He will take over for Rod Chinzinski. Boy, this should be very, very interesting around Cleveland in the next season or so. Of course, that signals it's time for us to get out of here. Thanks for joining us tonight. My thanks to Greg Mitchell for being our producer, but of course, most of all, the thanks go to you for listening. I'm Dave Mitchell. Our Super Bowl preview coming up next week on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show at 7 o'clock here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Thanks for joining us tonight. Be sure to check in next week. I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good night, everybody. Everybody.